the breath is really, I think the, the most important part of, you know, if we want to talk about healing, you know, it really, really begins there. And it's our primary connection to life. It's our primary relationship. It's our first relationship in this world. And it's also our last, you know, so we, we have this intimate, the most intimate relationship we'll ever have mm. with anything mm. is with our breath. And it carries us through life. It's there. It's silent. We don't have to notice it ever if we don't want to. But when we do, we are capable of altering it and practicing so that the rhythm of our breath can be in line with our life. Welcome to the dignity of suffering. Have you ever been brought to your knees by the challenges of life? What if you could enter the world of the therapist, be a fly on the wall, and hear their stories and insights into life's biggest challenges? Discovering a place to learn from the experiences of others who've tried to find dignity in their suffering. Each week, Mitchell Smolkin takes a candid look at the trials and tribulations of being alive. Mitchell is a registered psychotherapist author and speaker. He hopes to show that slowing down and becoming curious about our human experience can enrich our perspectives and plant our feet more firmly on the ground. Now, here's Mitchell. Welcome to episode 21, The Power of the Breath. Today I interview a colleague who became a friend who I met at an interesting conference in Boston on trauma a number of years ago. And we clicked and spoke about many aspects of the field in our lives that are important to us. And Esther's real gift is a commitment to the body, to yoga, to creating space. And in our interview today, I really discovered a real lightness of being that I can only imagine people benefiting from when they can be in her presence. When all the noise fades away in our lives, when we are on our own, when we're trying to fall asleep, maybe we're on a plane and it's quiet, we come back to our breath. I know for me, I've had a religious yoga practice for many years, and there's always a moment where I am able to reconnect with the depth of my breath. And Esther has a lot to say on this, and I'm going to let her speak for herself. But there's something about breathing that underscores our entire life. And if you remember in an earlier podcast, when I interviewed Sean Smith, he went to great lengths to talk about the fact that these primary drives like breathing and eating, they are always unconsciously there. They are always a priority and they are often beyond our conscious awareness. So it seems important then to slow down and take some time 
and to talk about breathing. And I felt my breath actually many times in the conversation with Esther, just bringing our attention to being present, which I know has become somewhat of a cliche. It's become fetishized. <laughs> it can even be a critique of somebody you're with. Hey, come on, come on, be present with me. I haven't seen you in a while. <laughs> and to be honest with you, I don't think that a lot of what is conveyed in the mindfulness movement and notions of being present goes all the way. It feels to me like it is a stepping stone to what lurks underneath. But to be able to feel ourselves breathing and to reconnect with our breath is a luxury and I know for me a very powerful way of centering myself. So without further ado, I want to introduce you to Esther, who is a psychotherapist, a yoga teacher, an artist, an art therapist, a creator, and someone that really has devoted her life to connecting with others and creating space to breathe. As always, I want to thank all of you and my growing audience for listening, for joining me, for writing to me. Very active these days on Instagram, which is where Esther and I actually just did a live this past weekend. Her handle is Studio Seed Art Therapy, and mine is at I am Mitchell Smolkin. And this is a place to find us, to talk to us, to interact, to write. So I hope if you're on Instagram or social media, you'll come and join us there. And if not, please keep joining me here. You can always email me, feedback at mitchellsmolkin.com, or go to my website, mitchellsmolkin.com. There are resources there. There's a free ebook. There's a book that I wrote on the intimacy problem. And otherwise, I wish you some edification in today's conversation. Well, it is a huge pleasure and kind of as this podcast goes, really came out of the rhythm of life that I have the wonderful Esther Kaleba on the podcast today. And I will include more in the introduction and the show notes about all the great things that Esther is and does but all to say that you've had your own multifaceted journey to becoming a, a psychotherapist, an art therapist, a student of yoga and meditation, and you can give a more nuanced kind of version of all that to everyone that's listening. But I just want to welcome you on the Dignity of Suffering podcast. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much for inviting me, Mitchell. So we we talked a bit before and decided, given all the different areas that we could talk about. We actually just did a, an Instagram live together just before this recording, where we went into relationships and love and, and absence, how to deal with absence. And something in my own body connects that. It's a nice segue to what we decided we would talk about, which is the breath. And maybe so I don't, I don't color it with my own thoughts and opinions. What inspired you to want to talk about breath on the podcast? And what does that mean to you? Hmm. Yeah, that's um, that's a good question, and that's a big question. 
<laughs> so maybe uh, maybe we begin by looking at kind of pieces of of that question. And uh, I think like we did in the other uh, interview, we we kind of meander and meander together. And I think, you know, both of us are psychotherapists and we've been working in, in that profession. And parallel to doing psychotherapy, I've been doing a daily uh, breath work and meditation and kundalini yoga practice. So, so these two worlds are very, very parallel. And I've worked a lot with people who've experienced trauma. And what I found about eight, nine years ago um, was I started really noticing people's bodies and bringing the body into the, the, the conversation and into the therapy. And at first it was more noticing you know, the, the way that their posture, when they would come in, when they would talk about certain things, the way that, you know, their body would move or twitch. And what I soon began to observe is, is people's breaths. And, you know, it came to a point where, you know, as soon as somebody walked in, I, I can tell where they're at by just tuning in with their breath. So in my work, I realized that, um, you know, the, the, the breath is really I think the the most important part of, you know, if we want to talk about healing, you know, it really, really begins there. And it's our primary connection to life. It's our primary relationship. It's our first relationship in this world. And it's also our last, you know. So we, we have this intimate, the most intimate relationship we'll ever have with anything is with our breath. And it carries us through life. It's there. It's silent. It, we don't have to notice it ever if we don't want to. But when we do, we are capable of altering it and practicing so that the rhythm of our breath can be in line with our life. And so I like to think of the breath as, you know, your most faithful friend, who's there with you until the end <laughs> and will will be so patient and so loving of you and will always be by your side. And it doesn't matter how you treat, you know, how you treat your breath. And so that's how I got interested in breath. And I think this work that we do of psychotherapy or psychology, it all comes down to the breath in terms of the word, the word psyche actually means the the animating life force which is the breath you know th this is what gives life or vitality or you know in yogic terms we call it prana but it's really this energetic life force and and as psychotherapists you know when you break down the word psyche and therapy it means you know care of care of the breath care of the the animating life force that sustains us and that keeps us alive and it's quite beautiful when you when you look at it that way yeah it's it's lovely it's a lovely thought i found this book on the veranda at my cottage from 1947 on psychosomatic medicine it makes me think of of the story you told me in the book you showed me uh, that you found at the garage sale, I think from the 1960s of the, for the little girl, right? Whose mummy goes away, the psychoanalytic book. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to look at texts over the course of time, because this book from 1947 
could read like it's from 2021. I mean, it's this physician in the States talking about the body, talking about how important it is, talking about how in our language, when we are disturbed, we often reference our body and it made, and, and it's true, right? Like I can't stomach this. I can't digest that. I've lost my appetite. Like all these things that he references. And what's so interesting in what you just said is that we often focus on what the first breath, right? That image of them getting the baby to take their first breath. And what do we often say? They, they took their last breath, right? This is such a, or if we think about throughout our lifespan, as you're saying, I, I can't breathe, <laughs> right? I can't breathe in this relationship or I, I can't, I can't breathe in my job anymore, you know, or I'm suffocating, right? There's this incredible, and it made me also think, which I know is close to your, your heart, this idea that breathing, as I think you just pointed out, it comes back to breathing in the sense that our body will prioritize that at all costs. So no matter what we willingly, consciously want or think we want to do, the nervous system will maintain homeostasis in our breath, and it will divorce us from any social activity if it really needs to sort of keep us alive, including making us go unconscious. <laughs> and so it, it's really powerful what you're saying. And, and I know for me, in thinking about speaking with you today, I was curious about your work with people. Specifically, I'm curious about kind of what has touched you in these yogic series that you're doing and, and breath work. I know that for me in the middle of a busy day, there's a moment if I go to yoga where when I can breathe, when I can get to the bottom of my breath, it's so grounding. It's like, oh, there I am. And I'm curious, I'm just, I would love to know just some, you know, if that resonates with you, what, what you see with people and how that impacts and reflects back on why you love what you do. Yeah. Oh, where to begin? I want to go back to what you were saying about the first breath and how life is measured. I think when we talk about the unconscious, you know, your breath pattern, I like to call it like a breath signature. Everybody has their own breath signature is what you learn from your parents or your environment. And you, when I say learn, I mean, learn somatically in your body. It's, it's not a conscious process. So, uh, I like to think that the, that when, when you start working with the breath, you're really working with deeper, deeper unconscious processes. Okay. And so what starts happening is that there are these habits that get set up or these breath patterns. And those will continue through your life unless, you know, it's the same as therapy, unless you consciously begin to observe, okay, how am I breathing? In what situations does my breath change? You know, and then start kind of pausing a bit and learning different ways of breathing. Okay. And so when we, when we speak about someone who's experienced trauma or any sort of, you know, nervous system kind of deregulation, which everybody has, you know, to, to varying extents. But the first thing, and this is recorded in all physiology books, this is, this is nothing is really esoteric about this. This is actually, I'm, I'm really surprised that within the medical community, breathwork is not more recognized because the first thing that changes when you're in contact with a stressor is your breath, your heart rate and your breath. Okay. And so 
what does that tell us? That tells us that, and this is yogic knowledge, this has been passed on for thousands of years, that your breath actually controls your mind and your breath controls your emotions, right? And you can, you can try this out if you're ever kind of having, you know, a, a lot of sadness or anger or big emotions come up. The first thing that will change is your breath pattern. And then everything else follows. And so if you're able to A, recognize that, and then B, have a whole repertoire of other breath patterns that you can do, you can avoid <laughs> all sorts of, you know, unnecessary kind of reactions. And that's the beauty about this practice. And, and that's also why it's so effective because it's kind of like training, like doing any sort of physical training. You train your body, you train the muscles, you train your, your diaphragm. I know you're a singer so that, you know, a lot of this stuff is, you know, you're, you're working all the muscles in, in your whole body, which is, you know, why in yoga, we do the yoga asana, which is the postures, which a lot of people are more familiar with, but you do the postures to prepare yourself to do the breath. The breath yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, it's all in the service of the breath and, um, because the breath is so, so primary to life and to living well, you know, and so that, that's why I teach it because I, I see a lot of people who have high levels of anxiety or depression or conditions where, you know, when they walk in, they're not breathing. Yeah. You know, I'd say 95%, maybe 99% of people I see in uh, my clinical practice, they breathe from up here. Okay. So just think of this physiologically, like really, this is not esoteric at all. Okay. If you are taking in a tiny bit of oxygen, because this is your pattern and because you're, you're used to holding so much stress in your body that your lungs actually can't physically expand. Okay. What is your body telling your brain? What is the feedback? You know, what's it telling your brain? Any ideas? <laughs> oh no, yeah, that you're scared, of course. That you're in a that yeah, something's wrong, yeah. of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. Sure, that sure, it, sure. it's the world is dangerous, and I need to, uh, you know, it, it, it's a scary place where I'm living, you know. And and so if people are doing that constantly, and this is their their basic breath signature, you know, and then they have anxiety, it's kind of like, of course you have anxiety, you know. You're you're not taking in oxygen either, you know. Your your brain is not being fed. Your nervous system is not being fed. You know, your body is telling your brain that it's really dangerous. You need to be on high alert here. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm right with you, and I, as I mentioned in the, you know, in the IG live that we did, I feel like I'm on a bit of a mission, as it sounds like you are as well, to reframe the ways that we protect ourselves. I think Gabor Mate is very good at this when he talks about addiction because he he really sort of says, look, someone is drinking to relieve their pain, <laughs> right? So the body is breathing, you know, in a more shallow way to keep one in a state of high alert because the body thinks that something very bad is going to happen. So there's a purpose to this, right? And this goes back, and I, I also had a thought, which I don't want to forget, 
where the wisdom of the breath from Kundalini Yoga and, you know, what you know more about than I do, I mean, this goes back thousands of years. And so that's always interesting to kind of remind ourselves that these practices as human beings of, of prioritizing what grounds us go back through the ages. But I want to be kind of specific here in the sense that I'm on a bit of a mission to kind of shake ourselves out of talking about binaries. So often, and I think it makes sense if we're trying to write books or we're trying to impart knowledge, often we talk about being traumatized and not being traumatized or breathing and not breathing or being close and not being close. And I, I often have trouble with that. And that's why I think I like the format of the podcast, because there's time to really slow this down. I'm curious if you could talk a bit about the process, because it is a process for all of us of times in our life where we deepen our breath. You said something lovely in the previous conversation we had about learning how to respond more, I would rather say, more than we react, right? Because it's never about instead of reacting, because we're always going to react sometimes, right? That's just part of life, and we're supposed to react sometimes. But I would love to know what your experience has been watching somebody deepen their breath, or what happens when someone all of a sudden is encouraged to breathe, because that is a passion of mine. And I have so much love for people when they initially start to do this work and it's so overwhelming and to watch the evolution of seeing them come back in and as you pointed out watching their body be able to sit and stay and look and and feel like they're really there and i would just love i would love to get some insight into your own what has touched you about meeting somebody there and kind of watching them deepen their breath and and, and how that affects you and affects them and just just what what comes to mind of what's affected you in that regard Mm. yeah you know what i what i kind of think when you bring that up i just think how amazing it is that the breath is i'd like to say the most democratic of anything in the world and what i mean by that is that it's always there. Nobody can own it. We're always sharing the breath. You know, you, you can't, you can't buy it. You can't sell it. And it's really what is there amongst us and in the space in between. And it's silent and, uh, present. And also you can't see it most of the time, you know? But uh, it keeps us all alive and also together. And something about breath work is that it creates community and bonds. And this is something when the pandemic started, I jumped in on the Zoom thing. I was very, very awkward and didn't know how it would work to teach uh, breath work classes online. And I started this little group and it was like every uh, twice a week in the evening. And there was maybe about 15, 20 people that would come every week and we would do breath work. And everybody was new to the practice and, and certainly had no idea what Kundalini yoga was or anything. And, and somehow they had arrived there and, and they faithfully came every week. And, um, and so I've been breathing with my core group of the people of the prana for the last year and a half through this pandemic. 
and watched how the level of the group has has deepened and increased and how the bonds between everybody of just sitting together and breathing on Zoom, okay, not even physically together, having maybe a little chat here and there after the class on Zoom, how this group has gelled together and there's this this force of total support and coherence with this entire group that people felt so connected to everybody. And uh, in July, we did a gathering, an in-person gathering, and it was amazing. It was amazing to witness that everybody said, wow, I feel like I know you so well. You know, I, I like these are these are people from all different kind of social circles. And and yet, you know, we 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 kind of engaged in this practice together. And so so that's kind of a collective kind of perception of that. And, you know, I, I, I have to say that the breath is not mine either. <laughs> so when you ask me, you know, what I've seen and I uh, I feel like I've been always on the receiving end, you know, of the breath. And also too the the receiving end of of being being a, a teacher or a guide or a, you know for, for this process for other people and so you know I've heard people say to me that you know it was what carried them through the hardship of the pandemic and the lockdowns and everything was you know the the, the coming back to the breath and knowing having the tools to do that, but also the experience to do that, to feeling like I can go through anything as long as I'm connected to my breath and I can keep my breath steady and calm, you know, that whatever happens around me in the world, I'm here and I'm okay, you know, and in this practice, you know, we, we hold our arms up like this for like 15 minutes or, you know, like I've, I've, you know, I've worked my way up with, with, um, you know, the, the group to, to kind of do more challenging practices. But, you know, a lot of people have said, wow, like, that's amazing. If, if I'm totally connected to my breath, um, even if I'm feeling pain because my arms are up like this, I can breathe through it and stay calm. And, and I, I, I think that that's, that's really the, the, the power of this practice. Yeah, once you've had that experience once, it's in your body, so you know it. It's not intellectual, it's, it's, it's felt, you know? Yeah. It, it reminds me, I had the pleasure of the great Canadian playwright, Thompson Highway, came and taught at U of T. And he's Canada's most famous Indigenous playwright. And he grew up in the north of Canada. And he talked about how growing up in the north, you you could hear the world breathe. Mm-hmm. You know, that when he was out on the ice or he was out and nobody was around and there isn't, quote unquote, civilization in the way that we understand it in more urban environments, you could hear the world breathe. And of course, there was that, you know, now quite understood phenomena when the pandemic started with less traveling and the earth was shaking less. And I'm always, well, I'm really on the fence around how we talk about the pandemic, of course, because there are ways to mystify it and look at it as a kind of evolution of consciousness or the soul of the world and all of that. And there's the very real loss that so many have experienced. And so I'm always sheepish to 
to say anything concrete or reified around what it is and isn't because I have friends that lost their parents. I, my friend almost died. So I think there's a very real everyday, just this is something that tears us apart and can really hurt us. And we, I don't think we should say anything more. And then there are these other ways one thing that really struck me was that The Atlantic, the magazine, did an article a year before the pandemic started where they talked about uh, strikes at the Louvre in Paris and they talked about the overcrowding at the top of Mount Everest and how they showed pictures of people just crowded up there trying to get to peak Mount Everest. And then literally a year to the day, they did an article about how the Louvre was shut down and how nobody was traveling anymore. And it just like, it was so affecting to, to feel this kind of response, which is biblical in nature, right? It's like the Tower of Babel a little bit, right? And thank you for your response and for your delicacy in terms of talking about the reciprocal nature of that work and, and not sort of, you know, as one of my good friends will say, not narrativizing it in a kind of like, you know, but really keeping it open. Um, but I feel like there's a reflection as you talk about the breath that has to do with what it means for us. I think as you're saying, to slow down and breathe and what, what that means when I'm with, with patients and stuff and we're just looking at each other and breathing, you know, that is so much scarier than talking. It's like, holy moly, like it's like it's louder. That's the most amazing thing. It's so much louder than if two people are talking when two people aren't talking. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think what you notice there really is, is each other, you know, the, the, the capacity to really be with another person in that moment, you know, with, with everything that is, you know, tying on, I know, I know this, uh, this kind of, we had this other conversation and it was, it was, you know, over there in one file and then we're having this conversation, but we did talk about absence in relationship. And, you know, I think the breath really, really speaks of absence, but not in maybe the way that we have learned absence in this cultural milieu. And what I mean by that is absence is the emptiness. So it is when we breathe, and especially in, in the more advanced practices, it's a process of allowing allowing the breath to breathe us. So we actually become receivers. You know, the breath is a gift and, and we receive and then we give back, you know. When we can be in that state, it is actually a state of, of emptiness. And in yogic traditions, they call it shunya. So it's, it's the place of, of nothing, you know. So you don't exist anymore as Mitchell, you know. You allow, you know, that ego part of you, you just move beyond that to, to the space of breath. And in yogic tradition, actually, we're, we're not a physical body only. Um, we're actually governed by uh, three different breaths. And so if you can just kind of imagine that, that imagine we're more breath than, than physical, 
you know, and how beautiful that is of, of, and then remembering that we don't own breath and that we share breath. So, you know, when we're having a conversation or when we're breathing, breathing conversation, you know, we're allowing this movement of the breaths through both of us and sharing in that. And it's, it's so beautiful, you know, is is very, very beautiful, but it's, it's from that state of emptiness that the healing happens. You know, and, and that it's like you're going to before creation, before the creation of a thought pattern, before the, 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 you're going before the seed, you know, to, to that primary vibration of the creation of the universe when you get into that space of shunya, the, the silence. And so, um, you know, silence is very, very healing and it is very, very fertile too. It's very creative. Yeah. Yeah, I like your reference earlier in our conversation to the fact that it it is like a muscle. You know, it is a it is a training because I'm really interested in the tension between quote unquote being on our mat or doing these practices that I think you're quite right in whatever way that we can understand or connect or touch notions of nothingness and whatever that however that reaches us and then also having to be in the world. Mm-hmm. And this is something else that uh, Dustin Atlas, who I interviewed about Martin Buber, you know, Martin Buber said, well, we can't, you know, we can't live in that other place of, of thou, right? That's, that's something we can't force. It's only intention, right? It's always even you and I talking and I look at you and I look in your eyes and, and I try to imagine you there and I listen. It's, it's, it's all intention, right? I don't know. I sometimes listen to podcasts after and it was really revealing to me in the beginning when I would listen after and a part of me would be like, oh, I didn't hear that or I wasn't listening to that or I didn't receive that. And that's not a, it's not a failure. I think I did feel that way, like, oh, I should have listened better. But, but it's more that it's, it's dynamic, right? It's like, where can I be in this moment? And I'm very, I think I'm interested because I think you're right. I I like that you brought up the cultural piece around it because that really shifts from culture to culture, right? And And I think it's important when we say, you know, what we learn in our cultural framework. I mean, that's, it's so important to say, well, what is that? What is your cultural framework? Where are we, especially now with the digital age, where are we talking from? Where do you live? Where do the people live that are listening to this? Mm-hmm. You know, I know having moved to Sweden, it is slower. It is mm-hmm. slower than other places in certain ways. Mm-hmm. There is still respect in the workplace, in people's hours, how much you work. If you have a normal standard job that is governed by the law, labor laws, as you get older, you get more vacation. It's actually written down your age. And how much time you get off. And it's pretty well sacred in the summer. People can take it's, it's six weeks off. And you can take it. And there's a mismatch there coming from North America. There's a real mismatch that I have felt where I'm, I have this rhythm, this breath inside of me. <laughs> and it's coming up against somebody else's breath. And they're like, I'm sorry, like, that's just not how our breath works here. And, and especially American corporate managers who come and my friends who listen to this podcast who are American corporate managers laugh when I talk about it. Yeah. But they often come to Sweden. They're like, what do you mean you're taking this much time off? Or 
You, you have a doctor's note that lets you be home for a year because you're burnt out. And there's a real, and I'm not, I'm not advocating for either model. I'll hold that tension here. Obviously, fundamentally, I believe we should have compassion, but there can be difficulties in either model, you know, but it is, it is interesting. Yeah, I think it's important to remember that there's no right or wrong um, when it comes to breath. You know, some people, when they start doing my classes or, or learning, they're like, oh, am I doing it right? Am I doing it right? And it's really important. Just there, there's no correct way to breathe. You just have different consequences. So sometimes, you know, you do need to react quickly to whatever situation you do need your breath to just, you know, get very rapid because it's there to save you. Other times, you know, you need to just relax. And so, you know, you need the breath to, to, to serve you in a different way. And this is the great thing about learning the different types of breath work that there is, is that you have so much choice. And this is something, if this was taught, and this is one of my missions, is to bring this into the school system at a very young age so that kids know, hey, if I'm feeling really hyper today, I can just breathe through my left nostril and that's going to calm me down. Or if I'm feeling really, really sluggish, I'm going to breathe through my right nostril and, and that's going to give me a bit of energy right now. You know, it, it, we have this incredible toolbox or uh, medicine at our disposal, you know, which is the breath. And, and all we have to know how to do is work with it, you know. So there's no correct way to breathe. It's just, you know, you're going to have different consequences. You know, if you can get just as much done with a slow rhythm of breath as you can with a rapid rhythm of breath. In fact, I probably think you could get more done and more efficient you know, but you have to train the muscles. You have to train yourself, right? And when we talk about this, you know, with therapy, we have really deep unconscious patterns. They live in our body and they influence the way that we are in the world, the way that we move. So this is also really, really deep work. And it can bring up a lot of emotion for people when you start changing the most fundamental part of you, which is your breath. You know, I mean, I don't tell anybody how to breathe. I just say, like, try this and see what the effects are. And, and so that you know, you know what the effects are. And next time you're really, really stressed out, you can do it, you know, because it feels better to be calm than it does to feel anxious. That's it. People feel the effects. And, and that's, that's why, that's why it works. It's, it's experiential. You know? I think you're saying something very nuanced and, and there's a real teaching there and there's also a real grace and an openness, which when I'm grounded and I'm, I'm in a more responsive and reflective place, there is an ability to hold all that people bring with them. And I reference my grandfather a lot in my work and I do it particularly because he couldn't talk about his family that had been murdered. He could never actually say their names for the entirety of his adult life until he died. It was physically impossible. That's why I sort of, you know, flippantly made that comment before about that, that there may be stuff in our life that we, through generations, can't bring mm. to the surface. This happens on a national level very often. You have national tragedies, right? When Poland... They lost about half of their 
political elite when a plane went down flying to Russia to commemorate 10,000 soldiers that were killed in Katyn after the war, were murdered by the Russians. There was a plane going to commemorate them and the plane crashed and it opened up this huge wound. And there's this great psychoanalyst, Margozata Kalinovskaya, who writes about, who wrote a paper about the way that this opens up wounds. And like we said earlier, there's events in our life or breath work or yoga or relationships or just one night, all of a sudden your mind wanders somewhere. I was sitting with my mother at uh, breakfast yesterday asking about when she left Riga after the war, they were refugees, uh, had no home. And all of a sudden we hadn't talked about this in years and stuff comes up. But where, where I want to just really understand, so I'm hearing you correctly, there's no right way to breathe, meaning that there's a wisdom in the body, I think, as I hear you saying. There's a way, there's a schema in the body that will respond to a situation if it thinks there's a threat. Now, that may be a perceived threat and not a real threat. And I think that what, when we talk about right and wrong, <laughs> we talk about the fact that if a child, for instance, goes to school and sits in school and thinks that they're going to get punished, their breath is going to be very rapid and they're going to be reacting and not being able to think and to integrate new information. And I, to be honest with you, I'm a little bit hesitant to, to normalize everything and be like, you know, that, that's, well, that's okay. <laughs> because I think as a community, and I think as you, I hear you saying earlier when you said, look, people come in and are breathing only up to here. You know, Freud said right from the beginning that therapy was about learning how to love and to work how to love and to work, right? How to go to work and have a good enough sense of oneself and how to love and be able not to, to freak out and come out of relationships. And so I feel like yeah. you're saying something nuanced and I don't want to overstep because I think you're right. There's no one right way to breathe. There's a wisdom in how we breathe and all you can do is kind of suggest. And But yet we're also saying that that being disembodied and experiencing life around you is always a threat. That, that, I think you said that, that, that can cause a kind of re, a reaction or response in us that's less than ideal. Mm -hmm. Am I getting that right? Or is that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think when I say there's no right or wrong, it's, it's, uh, there is consequence, right? So there's consequence to breathing very shallow is that your, your life is very limited. You know? And I can only say that because I've learned how to breathe deeply throughout the years. You know? That yes, the experience of the world is very narrow. It's it's like speaking a language with you know having two sentences as opposed yeah. to the whole vocabulary. So, I mean, I my my mission and my passion is to share this work. You know, is to to share. You know, and like I said, it it begins. I mean, if kids were given this language, you know, at a young age, that this was just part of you know brushing your teeth and doing your three minutes, and that's what I recommend to people. This is a practice. It only becomes part of you when you do it every day, and so you begin small. You you do it before you brush your teeth. Okay. Because chances are you won't leave your house without brushing your teeth. Okay. And you do three minutes of whatever breath work, pranayam you choose, but you do the same one every day and you do the three minutes every day and then you brush your teeth or then you have your shower. Okay. And, and so then you've done it. And then, you know, eventually, and this is what's happened with our group. It was three minutes, five minutes, 11 minutes, and now it's half an hour. 
every day. And it's part of people's day. So they can't imagine waking up in the morning without coming back to the breath, without coming back to the self, you know, so that in those moments where the breath does become shallow, because it does, because we all have our habitual ways of being in the world, you can kind of notice and go, oh, okay, I'm breathing really, really shallow right now. Let me do something about that or, you know, and, and, and switch your breath or, or do a particular breath that will help you, you know, slow it down. So part, you know, part of the big work of breath work, which is also about psychotherapy is bringing awareness, bringing consciousness to the present moment. And so, you know, when you begin to do breathing, really all you're doing, it's so simple, but it's so hard, like all these things is staying connected to the breath and keeping your awareness with the breath, you know? So not thinking about what you did yesterday or the the issues and the problems, but really staying with the inhale and the exhale and noticing it and, and being really fully observant of the sensations. Because I've been doing this every day for 15 years. Not one day is the same. And I'm always learning something new. And so it's always mm-hmm. about being with that present moment. You know, I think in today's day and age, I think this is the most precious commodity. This is, is your awareness and where you are able to direct your awareness. You know, that this is what is being bought and sold. This is, you know, the, our awareness is being hijacked. And this is the tool that we need right now more than anything is to be able to focus on what it is we need to focus on, you know? Well, it's neat, right? I think I hear you talking about about being able to have discretion and, you know, on who who has access to our uh, energy and our breath. (laughs) And, And it also, and I keep coming back to this, but it strikes me as well that you are not in any kind of again, concrete way as in, you know, you know you're doing this, but it's, it's also relational, right? What did you say that the, you know, you and these other people were together and you finally got together and there's a, you know, it feels like I know you, right? And, and, and that's very important for me, right? We forget, we think we go to therapy to learn something for ourselves or it's like, yes, but it's, it's relationship, right? It's with you. And obviously you bring uh, your own practice and dedication to it, which must reverberate and model for people to give them permission to breathe. And it's lovely. And I'm, I'm glad that we crossed paths again so we could breathe together. I hope we can breathe in the same in the same space, same yes. space. Yeah, you know, I I just want to add on to that because because you know th- this whole practice. I mean, a lot of these uh, self help yoga things. It's about um, sometimes you know the marketing there is about you being better and feeling better and all these things. And you know, the breath work is not really about you. It's about you know, yes, being in a space where, where you do feel good in yourself, but you know, the, the, the whole purpose for that is to be able to then share and, mm. and be in a place to help and serve other people. Mm. And, and so, you know, with, with the breathwork groups that I do, especially the, the students that, that have been practicing longer, I mean, 
they've shared these techniques with their family, their friends, and, you know, people are kind of going to them and going, wow, how are you, you know, you're so calm through this whole pandemic. You've been, you know, I have one, one uh, person and she's just like, everyone's telling me I'm so calm. And then she's just like, it's the breath work. I'm like doing this. And so, you know, and it's amazing because, because, uh, because she is this, this kind of, she is holding that strength for her community and the people around her through her breath, right? So the, the, it's never about you. It's never about you, you know, and, and yeah. It, it reminds me of this older couple that I worked with for many, many years and from Europe, you know, and quite of that vintage, right? Just very, you know, yeah, old school, old Europe and all this emotional work, especially with a man of that, of that generation, right? And the way that they might sit and just talk about football, European football, <laughs> or, you know, the weather or their wives or whatever. And he came in one day and he looks at me with these big eyes, like he was a kid. And he goes, you know, I went to work and had lunch with all the other men. And he goes, I, I suddenly talked about my feelings. <laughs> And it was just like, it was so amazing because it's exactly what you said. It was, it was like quite surprising himself. Even he started to model a degree of openness relationship. You know, that's really what it is, right? It's, it's capacity, which is very reciprocal in nature. I like what you're saying, right? The ability to connect and to have space and to let somebody else in is, is this dialectical process, right? It's, it's circular and you know, it's about us and it's not about us. It's all in, and everything in between, but it does, it is about creating space. And, and I've loved the, yeah, I've loved the energy. It's kind of nice that almost the space and the breath from when you and I first started really talking about this stuff. And I know that when we first met, there was already a very deep simpatico that we felt immediately around our love for this work. And it's interesting to have it reflected back in our conversation today. And really like we're, we're very much on the same page about that. Uh, I think, I think somewhat dangerous idea that we don't realize where self-help implicitly talks about doing things wrong or being wrong and just trying to really complicate and deepen that and, and have a chance with you to breathe. <laughs> and I love the, I love the carefulness that you bring yeah, to holding that tension between, on the one hand, offering something, on the other hand, allowing who people are and, you know, how they breathe to be what it is and and to sort of gently be with them. And, and but on the other hand, talk about what we know about trying to expand our lives and make more room uh, feels really important. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, let, let's go back to the definition, you know, before we end, but the, the definition of, of psycho, you know, psyche, which is the, the animating life force and the animating energy of life, the prana, the, you know, that, that this is, I, I think this is the heart of our work, right? To make or to help people, um, connect that aliveness, you yeah. know, and, um, <laughs> And that's, you know, that's, I think when, when we talk about happiness, I mean, for me, that, that would be that, you know, is when I feel truly, truly alive and the breath. Yeah, I think in Greek, it, yeah, it is the soul. And also I'm almost positive. It means butterfly. That is the word for butterfly, which is very interesting given, 
the, given the nature of a butterfly and how it, you know. F- yeah, I think I think it's in the myth. In the myth, she she has butterfly wings, psyche. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, thank you. I wish you a lovely rest of your day. Thank you so much. Yeah, this has been super, super lovely. I look forward to connecting more and creating more and finding all the ways that our, our paths will intersect. Amazing. Thank you so much. <laughs> I really liked the moment when I realized that Esther was very much trying to hold people in the ways that they present themselves. Her comment that there is really no right or wrong way to breathe really aligns with my own philosophy of fundamentally understanding that our bodies are responding the ways that logically and intelligently they know how. One thing I learned in my training as an emotionally focused therapist, which has just always supported me in my work, is that our our emotions are logical. Even if to others or the world or society it's inconvenient, disruptive, there is a logic in the ways that our bodies try to survive. Now, as Esther pointed out, there can be consequences. And of course, that varies wildly between families, cultures, countries. The way that you respond emotionally in one country has a very different impact in another country, which is a very interesting idea to think about because we tend to really try to rigidify normalcy in our societies. And that's where so much of our diagnostic criteria comes from. But that changes so dynamically when you travel around the world. So there's something, at least fundamentally, about just keeping in mind that the way that things shake out in our lives has an internal logic. And then from that starting point, I guess we can try as we all do, to increase our curiosity. And as Esther points out, there's nothing more revealing than how we are breathing. Well, I wish I could be breathing in the same room with all of you. And maybe one day we will be together. But for now, I want to thank you again for joining me here. Please rate, review the podcast wherever you listen. Please share it with people that you love or you think might be interested and as always please do not hesitate to reach out to me i remain faithfully yours